Some crimes are so heartbreaking or shocking that they earn the label crime of the century. But the stories that made headlines in decades past aren't necessarily remembered today. I'm Amber Hunt, a journalist and author, and in each episode of this show, I'll examine a case that's maybe lesser known today, but was huge when it happened. This is Crimes of the Centuries. Elaine Witte was a woman in her 70s living alone in her home in a retirement community in Michigan City, Indiana, when she decided to trade in her day-to-day peace and quiet to help out her daughter-in-law, who was in a jam. Marie Witte needed a place to live. Marie was, like Elaine, widowed. Unlike Elaine, however, when Marie's husband, Elaine's stepson Paul, had died, Marie had two boys still living at home, boys who were unquestionably traumatized by the untimely death of their father. In fact, one of those boys, the older of the two, had actually been the cause of Paul's death. Eric Witte had been 15 years old when he said he found a gun in the house, a gun that he had accidentally fired, killing his dad while he slept on the living room couch. Understandably, Eric hadn't seen the same after that. He didn't talk much about the accident, but when he did, he said things that made it clear he blamed himself. Things like, I killed my best friend. The family had inherited a bit of money after Paul's death, but it didn't stretch very far. And because of some land deals made before Paul died, Marie had to find a new place to live. That's when Elaine stepped in. How about you and the boys come live with me, she asked. For a while, this seemed like an ideal solution. Marie and Elaine had a lot in common. They both went by their middle names. Marie's first name was really Hilma. Elaine's was Mary. They would sit on the porch, smoking the same brand of cigarettes and drinking Tom Collins's together. Marie got a home for her boys and some stability. Elaine felt more active and social, not to mention closer with her grandsons. The whole situation seemed like a win-win. And then, in early 1984... Elaine disappeared. By the time investigators found out what had happened to her, the case was among the most sensational and macabre in Indiana history. Crimes of Centuries is sponsored by Helix Sleep. Helix is offering up to $200 off of all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners at helixsleep.com COTC. With Helix, better sleep starts now. Crimes of Centuries is sponsored by Heights. Tackle brain fog, energy, and sleep issues with Heights Smart Supplement. Go to yourheights.com and use my code COTC at checkout to get your exclusive discount and start taking care of your brain and body today. Elaine Witte had been born in 1908 in the same city she would later retire in. If you don't know Michigan City, Indiana, that must mean you haven't done a road trip along I-94 before. Michigan City is a quirky little burg on the south shore of Lake Michigan. Some 10 miles northeast, and you're in Michigan. About an hour west, and you hit the Illinois border. Elaine was born to James and Wilda Moran. She was one of three children, two girls and a boy. 
Her older brother, John, died of pneumonia just two days shy of his 18th birthday when Elaine was only five. Dad, James, died in 1936. By 1940, Elaine had been married and divorced, according to census data. She worked as a telephone operator for the Indiana Bell Telephone Company. Four years later, she would remarry a man named Leonard Witte, a railroad worker who had a son named Paul from a previous marriage. Paul would have been about seven years old when Elaine came into his life, and she always treated him like her own son. Paul's birth mother was named Mary Ost. She and Leonard Witte had been married from 1930 to 1936. Paul had been that couple's only child, though Mary would go on to have two more children with her second husband, giving Paul a half-brother and half-sister. The census data shows that Paul lived for at least a time with his mom and her parents in Danville, Illinois. He was still 16 years old when he joined the military, according to Department of Veterans Affairs documents. He joined just shy of his 17th birthday in 1954 and was discharged about four years later. After that, he moved to Indiana near his father and stepmother Elaine. Paul's marriage to Marie had an interesting start. In late 1964, he traveled on vacation to a Florida nudist camp where he met a 16-year-old girl who had already been married and divorced that very year. Marie Christ had had a rocky childhood. She'd been born in Pennsylvania, but bounced around in part because Mom Margaret, called Marcy by friends, had gone through her own rough patches and lost custody of Marie and Marie's sister. When Marcy was able to get the girls out of foster care, she brought them to live with her and her new husband at a nudist camp in Florida. This camp, owned by a guy named John Dawson, made headlines on the regular for hosting nude marriage ceremonies between teenage girls and 20-something men which was legal, by the way, with parental consent. I kid you not, a wire story ran nationwide in 1964 that describes the plans of Dawson's own daughter, age 16, to marry a guy six years older than she. Their attire was described. She'd be wearing a filmy white veil to complement her suntan, and he would be neatly shaved with parted hair. That's it as far as clothing goes. One more aside here, I found a follow-up news story about the owner of this nudist colony in 1981. By then, he was known as the Reverend John Dawson, and his home was described by federal authorities as a, quote, nationwide distribution point for hardcore pornography, end quote. Shocking. Anyway, around the same time as Dawson's daughter's wedding and at the same colony, Marie married 22-year-old Charles Nero. They divorced in December. It's unclear, beyond the obvious, what doomed Marie's first marriage so quickly. Maybe it was the age difference, because, again, Marie was only 16. For what it's worth, Charles would remarry five years later to a woman his same age. Marie did not wait years for her second marriage. She literally waited just days. It's because of that, and because of an even wider age gap than her first marriage, that I think it's fair to view the second union with a bit of side-eye. Paul was 10 years older than his teenage bride, and there's a big difference between a 26-year-old and a 16-year-old. On top of that, the nudist wedding was apparently photographed for a magazine catering to nudist camp clientele, and when asked on the stand about the wedding, Mom Marcy couldn't remember if she had charged guests an admission fee to witness the event or not. 
Anyway, after the wedding in 1964, Marie moved with her new husband back to Indiana to start their life as a married couple. Two years later, they had their first child, a son named Eric. He was followed a few years later by a little brother, christened John, but nicknamed Butch. It seemed the parents divvied up responsibilities in what I would consider an old-fashioned way. Marie stayed home with a child. Paul worked full-time to provide for the family. On his marriage certificate, he listed his occupation as steelworker. He also would become a volunteer firefighter. To word it generously, it seems Paul had some old-fashioned views on parenting, too, based on Eric's memories of his dad. I said something that he took as being a, you know, smart-mouthed answer. And the backhand came across. This is Eric speaking a few years ago in the Discovery ID show, Evil Lives Here. He was a very large, powerful person. A backhand from him, that's not a love tap. Not from him. He thought of it as discipline. Marie's reaction to this discipline was to basically hide and wait it out. For my mother, typically, once that started, she would simply walk into another room and wait. It would be absolutely pointless for her to step in between, because the only thing that could happen at that point is her getting hit. Once the beating was over, Marie would reappear. Afterwards, there was my mother making me feel better. And it was my mother who would put a bandage on it or help with the ice or, if necessary, take me up to the hospital. She was always comforting. Just do what he says. Don't talk back. You know, encouragement on how to avoid it. Now, he said his mother would take him to the hospital when necessary, but it seems worth noting that there isn't corroboration that Eric was treated at a hospital for physical abuse when he was a child. I want to be transparent there. At the same time, though, there are multiple people who corroborate that Paul would become violent in his supposed attempts to discipline his children and also his wife. Maybe that isn't surprising, given that Marie was basically a child herself when she married him. Paul would get upset about Marie's cooking, her housekeeping skills, her money management. Down the road, Marie's mother, Marcy, moved to Indiana to be closer to her grandsons, and at one point even moved into the Witty household. Marcy said she witnessed some of this abuse. The family had to tiptoe around Paul, she said. One minute, things would be fine, and the next, he'd be hurling insults and plates. But there were, of course, lots of good times that offset the bad. That's why these situations are so hard to leave. When one rage passes, things are so pleasant that it's easy to think the outburst was a fluke, not a personality trait. Especially when you're a child and you view your parents as basically your whole world. There were times life was fantastic. My father and I would take off and go camping. When it was just the two of us in that kind of setting, everything was great. Probably about as close to happy as I can remember. It's because of those experiences that Eric considered his dad his best friend. But the bad times could be really, really bad. One time, Eric said he had failed a spelling test. He was in the third grade, and he'd been told to take the test home to get his parents to sign off on it. He didn't want to incur his father's wrath for failing the test, 
So instead, Eric either changed the grade or forged his dad's signature on the paper. He couldn't remember which. Either way... Shortly thereafter, the principal, of course, dutifully got a hold of my father and let him know what the problem was. He was so mad. Not only did I fail, but worse than anything, I covered it up and lied to him. And that absolutely required punishment. Marie wasn't home while this was happening, he said. And it just kept going until I couldn't stand there anymore. He used me like a freaking pinata. All you really think about is just, please stop. Eventually, he just got out of breath and his heart got tired. When Marie finally got home, she iced Eric's bruises and put him in a bath to control the swelling. While she comforted him, she said, he has to be stopped. Wouldn't it be better if he was dead? I'm sitting in the tub of ice, and I hurt, and I am absolutely hating my father. And she's sitting there going, you've got to do something about this. You can't keep going through this. Wouldn't it be better if he was dead? I was in the third freaking grade. You're supposed to take that. You're sitting there and anything that's not numb from ice hurts. It's not a big leap to go, yeah, he'd be, it'd be better if he was dead. The suggestion in the tub, without a doubt, changed everything for me. Eric's mom made it clear she was ready to do her part. Not long after the tub conversation, she began tampering with Paul's vitamins, opening up the gel capsules to dump out the powder inside and replace it with something else. So she started packing them with everything from rat poison to Valium. You know, I come in one time and she's just putting them all together and refilling the bottle. After each tampering, she and Eric would be on edge, watching Paul to see what kind of reaction he would have to the medicine change. Sometimes he'd get dizzy and lie down. Sometimes he'd get headaches. What he never got, though, was life-threateningly ill. Marie continued drugging Paul for months. Each time it didn't work, she would turn to Eric and say, Hey, I'm doing my part. Why aren't you doing yours? What are you going to do about this? Eric waffled. He didn't want to kill his dad. His dad was his best friend. But then there'd be a beating, and he'd say, yeah, you're right, this can't keep happening. I've got to do something. Before he'd work up the nerve, though, the dust would settle, and Paul would be friendly again. After literally years of this, Marie finally said, that's it. Either you kill your father, or I'm leaving this house and never coming back. So make your choice. It's either him or me. When police got the 911 call on September 1st, 1981, it came from Marie Witte. She said her husband had been shot and her son had been the gunman, but she insisted it had been an accident. The story she told, which was echoed by Eric, his brother Butch, and Marie's mother Marcy, went something like this. Marie was out of the house running errands. Marcy was in the kitchen getting some tea ready. Butch was in a bedroom toward the back of the house. Eric happened to notice a gun he had never seen in the house before, so he picked it up and went to bring it to his father, who was lying on the couch taking a nap. 
Marie had never kept the house as tidy as Paul liked. He mentioned that more than once in their many fights over the years. And this day, the living room was cluttered as usual. While carrying the gun to his father, Eric tripped over either a bunched up rug or maybe one of the Siberian huskies the family owned. He couldn't remember for sure. The gun discharged, the bullet tearing through the top of Paul's head, killing him instantly. Marie did most of the explaining to police. Eric simply parroted her explanation. So did Butch and Marcy. If police doubted their story, the fact was that everything they said lined up with the physical evidence and eyewitness statements. Neighbors corroborated that Marie had been out of the house and was, in fact, just pulling into the driveway when the gunshot fired. I didn't really get the sense that she was proud because I had killed him. But things were on that evening when the police finally had to say, it looks like this was an accident. Then she was proud of me. I had stuck with the plan. Eric didn't feel pride, though. How I felt after that was just really numb and indifferent. It's just, who? that's over. There was no guilt to it. At that point, all I could really see was that what I needed to do had been done. But the guilt did come, and soon... Watching Eric talk about it as an adult on the show Evil Lives Here is heartbreaking. I have to get up every day knowing that I took out one of the most important figures in my life. If life had become more peaceful after Paul died, maybe Eric would have been able to reconcile things a little differently. But life didn't. For starters, the four remaining in the witty house, Marie, the two boys, and Marie's mom, Marcy, had to move out soon after Paul died. The details are a little murky, but it appears that Paul had agreed to sell the house before he died, but after his death, the house mysteriously burned down, prompting Paul's stepmother, Elaine, to invite Marie and the boys to live with her in her retirement community. Marcy, completely displaced, moved in with a friend. Eric, who, remember, was 15 when his dad died, and Butch, who wasn't even a teen yet, both began to drink. Their grades started to suffer. Butch got in fights at school. Outsiders could, of course, ascribe this downward spiral to the chaos the boys had endured in recent months. The one seemingly bright side in all of this was that at least Marie and Elaine were getting along really well. Eric said he never saw them fight. They would sit and smoke and drink and chat and appeared to like each other's company. Then one day, Eric said he walked in on his mother stirring a familiar-looking powder into Elaine's drink. He asked what the hell she was doing, and Marie said, Look, it has to happen. Elaine is going to kick us out. Eric was dumbfounded. He had called Elaine grandma since his birth. So had Butch. She had been kind and loving to them. She wasn't a threat. His dad had been a threat, but this warm, kindly old lady couldn't have hurt them if she'd tried. Marie insisted something had to be done. The concoctions she mixed up for Elaine to drink were just as ineffective as those she'd served to Paul, and by now Eric had come to believe that Marie had never intended Paul to die from the vitamin tampering anyway. He got the sense because of what Marie said to him while they were waiting for police to arrive after he had shot his dad. She told Eric that if he stuck to the story that he had tripped, 
There's nothing that they can put on her. And in a worst case scenario, I will go to juvie and get out when I'm 18 because they can't hold me as an adult. In all their previous talks, Marie hadn't mentioned this you-might-go-to-juvie matter because, Eric realized in hindsight, that would have scared him from doing it. She had always been angling for him to be the killer because then she wouldn't go to prison. That's surely why one poisoning attempt after another not only failed to kill Paul, but failed to even make him sick enough for him to get suspicious that something was happening to him. With all this in mind, Eric came up with a plan to save Grandma Elaine. He felt confident that his mom wouldn't kill Elaine herself, so he left town. He joined the Navy at age 18, hightailing it from Michigan City to his assigned base in California. He thought for sure he'd thwarted his mother's homicidal plan, but he wasn't even finished with boot camp before he got a panicked phone call from home. We need you here. Grandma's had an accident. Eric was granted leave from the Navy to go see what had happened at home. He drove cross-country from California to Indiana, a 2,200-mile trek that took him days to complete. And I finally do get home. Me and my mother go downstairs, and she shows me the freezer. There's, There's these chains going around and big padlock with a key. And she's got to take all this stuff off to open it up. But she finally gets the thing open, and there's a freezer full of garbage bags. Of course, those trash bags weren't empty. Forty bags of grandma. What the hell is wrong with you? Eric had been right about one thing, though. His mom didn't have it in her to kill Elaine. She had recruited Butch, Eric's younger brother, who was just 15 at the time. It hadn't occurred to Eric that she would rope Butch in the same way she'd roped him in around the same age, because Butch had always been treated a little differently than Eric had. Though Butch had been beaten by his dad from time to time, he was comparatively coddled. He was the younger of the two, and also had type 1 diabetes, which made him prone to illness more often. Eric had always read his mother's recruitment of him as the oldest as a sort of trust thing or a passing of the torch. Once Paul was dead, he was the man of the house after all. In some weird, twisted way, she'd made him feel special by entrusting him with the secret that Paul had to die and then with the responsibility of actually killing him. Turned out, though, she said those things to all the boys, as in her boys, both of her boys. As she'd done with Eric, Marie made a point to give Butch what appeared to be a choice in the situation. She told Butch that he could choose whether to strangle Elaine or shoot her with his crossbow. In the meantime, while he worked up the courage to do as his mother asked, she did the same thing she had done with Paul. She drugged Elaine. Again, she didn't drug her so much that it was fatal, but just enough to make her sick and docile. This aspect of the murders I find horrifying, of course, but also, like, darkly fascinating. Because it's a really shrewd move when you think about it. By giving her sons the final say in how they killed, she ensured that they ultimately felt responsible. To this day, Eric says, I'm never going to say it's my mother's fault that I shot my father. Because in the end, I made a choice. 
Butch shot Elaine as she slept in her bed after ingesting whatever concoction Marie had fixed for her that night. Afterward, the mother and son went to work dismembering her body. Marie seemed stumped about what to do after that. She told Eric they were in a bind, and it was his fault because he should have stuck around to kill Elaine. Instead, his less capable brother had done it, and Marie worried that the two of them alone wouldn't be able to pull off the subsequent cover-up. Eric wanted nothing to do with this, but also didn't want his brother to go down, and on top of that, he naturally, and no doubt correctly, assumed that if Marie and Butch were caught for killing Elaine, the truth would come out about Eric's killing of Paul a few years earlier. So, Eric felt obligated to give them advice, but he was adamant that he wouldn't help. He said that they should tell anyone who asked that Elaine had gone on vacation and that she was touring the country. Meanwhile, they should keep things as normal as possible on the home front. Eric then hopped into his car and began the long drive back to California. Along the way, he noticed a terrible smell emanating from his trunk. He inspected the source of the smell and discovered an ice chest, a cooler, that he hadn't packed. A few bags of grandma were in the cooler. His mother had saddled him with a parting gift he most certainly did not want. I'm carrying a body across the country. It's not like I can dump this in a garbage somewhere or bury it. The only thing I could think to do was hold on to it so nobody else finds it. So I just keep going to San Diego. Along the drive, Eric said he was pulled over by a traffic cop who came oh so close to inspecting that cooler in the trunk. But thanks to luck or fate or divine intervention, a speeder blew past and the trooper gave chase to that guy instead. Eric put the remains of his grandma in a storage unit and tried to carry on as though everything were normal. But soon, his mom and Butch arrived in California and said it was time to flee. Marie Witte had managed to keep questions about her mother-in-law's whereabouts at bay for several months, but things just seemed really weird. Marie was making changes to Elaine's house, selling some old furniture and buying new stuff, really redesigning the place to make it much more Marie's house than Elaine's. Friends and family would ask Marie to have Elaine call them, but the calls never came. That on its own was enough to raise suspicion. She couldn't keep stalling people telling them that, you know, Elaine's on vacation. One of the relatives finally called the police. Well, it just so happens that they wound up getting in touch with the same detective who had investigated my father's death, and nothing ever sat well with him. It turned out that despite Paul Witte's case being treated like it was open and shut, Some doubts had festered with this investigator, and when it turned out that a second family member had something bizarre happen a few years later, well, his interest was piqued further. He started digging and noticed that Elaine's Social Security benefits checks were still being cashed, and more than that, they were being cashed locally. Surely if Elaine had been swinging by long enough to cash these checks, someone would have seen her, yet no one had. The cops reached out to Marie's mother, Marcy. Marcy had moved in with some friends after Marie and the boys moved in with Elaine, and investigators hoped that signaled a slight rift in the family. At first, it seemed those hopes were misplaced. Marcy said she knew nothing about Elaine's disappearance. But after Marie and Butch bailed for San Diego, Marcy had a change of heart. 
She called investigators and said actually she did know something about Elaine, namely that Elaine was dead. See, Butch had killed Elaine accidentally with a crossbow. Marie was sure police wouldn't believe that another accidental shooting death could happen in the same family, so they all went to great lengths to hide what had happened. It was for Butch's sake. Marcy also relayed that she had helped Marie get rid of some parts of Elaine and had even dressed up in Elaine's clothes to sit shotgun in the car while Marie went to Elaine's bank to cash her social security checks. Police went back to Elaine's house and saw that not only were Marie and Butch gone, but it looked like they ditched for good. They realized the two were likely meeting up with Eric in San Diego, so they enlisted the help of cops out there. Meanwhile, Eric had left his post with his mother and brother, and the three were headed to Mexico. They had just one stop to make before crossing the border. They wanted to cash one more of Elaine's social security checks. This time, though, the person assisting them at the bank noticed that this seemed odd. Marie was not Elaine, so why was she cashing Elaine's check? And where was Elaine anyway? The three were brought into a local police station for questioning. Marie told Eric not to say a thing. There's a photo of Eric at the time of this arrest that's just heartbreaking. He's still a teenager, barely old enough to grow a mustache, and his face while being led away by police just looks so empty. His eyes are dead, not in the evil way, but more hollow. Over his shoulder, you can see his pursed lip mother wearing oversized sunglasses. This is Eric talking about that photo on evil lips here. Oh, that's me. And I asked my mother in the background, right behind me, whispering in my ear, don't tell them anything, don't cooperate, just stay silent and see how it plays out. So I, of course, didn't cooperate with them. Brother Butch apparently didn't get the memo. We got split up almost immediately. My brother started talking probably within an hour of being arrested. But I can't really blame him for it. I mean, he was was a 15-year-old kid looking at going to prison for more than half of his life. So he said whatever they wanted him to say. The way he words that suggests a coerced confession, which in turn suggests that maybe Butch said things that weren't quite true. But what Butch told police held up. He said that he had killed Elaine. It wasn't an accident. His mom had asked him to do it because Elaine was going to kick them out of her house. He pretty quickly delved into his father's death, too explaining that the reason he, Butch, had been asked to kill Elaine was because Eric had already killed Paul. They each had to do their part, see? Once the full story came out, headlines about it hit newspapers nationwide. Grandmother slain, family in custody. From an Associated Press story, quote, A 15-year-old boy has been charged with murdering his grandmother with a crossbow, then dismembering and freezing her body with the help of his mother, brother, and a friend. End quote. The friend, by the way, was a guy named Douglas Menkel, a 22-year-old who had known the family for a while. He would eventually testify that he helped dispose of Elaine's body by helping to crush the woman's teeth and dispose of body parts in the garbage disposal and with acid. Those were only a couple of the ways the family had gotten rid of the corpse. 
Some pieces had been deep fried, others were fed to the family's dogs. The methods worked overall. There were never enough pieces of Elaine found to test her tissue for the drugs that Marie allegedly fed her. That apparently was the whole point of dismembering and dispersing her parts to begin with. All three witties were convicted in Elaine's death. Marie was sentenced to 90 years, six years for murder, and another 30 years for conspiracy to commit murder. She got another 10 years for forging Elaine's signature on social security checks. Butch was allowed to plead guilty to assisting a criminal in exchange for testifying against his mom. Eric was charged with the same since he wasn't in the state when Elaine was killed. Marcy O'Donnell, Marie's mother, faced the same charge too. Eric was subsequently also tried in his father's death. Brother Butch testified against him, saying that even though everyone else was sure Butch had been in a back bedroom at the time Paul was fatally shot, Butch said he actually witnessed the shooting. He testified, quote, I turned around and I saw this flare and, you know, coming out of the gun, and I saw my dad's leg move straight up and kind of like gasping for air noise coming out, end quote. Eric pleaded guilty to voluntary manslaughter and was sentenced to 20 years in prison. Marie got another 50-year sentence for her role in her husband's slaying, bringing her total sentence to 150 years. Eric and Butch ultimately spent about a decade behind bars apiece. Butch died a few years later from causes related to his diabetes. Eric is still alive and says that about once a year, he stops and takes stock of how his life is going. He said he asks himself, is the life I have now worth having killed for it? Doug Menkel, the family friend who helped dispose of Elaine, plea bargained a deal that let him go free with time served. Marcy, Marie's mother, pleaded guilty to attempted murder for helping poison Paul in the years before his shooting death. She was sentenced to six years and has since died. Marie is still in prison. I researched this story after being asked to examine evidence for an upcoming episode of the TV show Snapped. As such, I read trial testimony and police reports as well as newspaper coverage. I also did a lot of genealogical research to provide details here that I hadn't seen anywhere else. The biggest help in terms of outside audio for this episode was obviously Eric Witte's interview with Discovery ID's show Evil Lives Here. His episode is titled, She Made Me Do It. Crimes of the Centuries is a production of the Obsessed Network. To learn more about its shows, go to obsessnetwork.com. This case was researched and written by me, Amber Hunt, and produced by Garrett Tiedemann. Steve Tipton edited the script. Original music is by Bruce Hunt and Andrew Higley. Other music comes from Blue Dot Sessions and Universal Music Productions. If you like us, help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. For more information or to recommend a case, go to centuriespod.com. On Instagram and Twitter, we're at Centuries Pod. And check out our Crimes of the Centuries podcast Facebook page. <laughs>